Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to Beyond the Pearls. Today, I'll be reading for you case 34. My name is Dr. Parastu Khalasi Hosseini. This case is titled 16-Year-Old Female with Nausea, Emesis, Icterus, and Abdominal Pain. It's written by Dr. Hirsch and Dr. Liu. Let's begin. A 16-year-old female, ballerina, presents to the emergency room with a two-day history of yellowing of her eyes followed by acute onset epigastric abdominal pain, nausea, and non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. What is your differential diagnosis? The differential diagnosis for jaundice and abdominal pain include acute hepatitis, such as viral hepatitis, which presents with right upper quadrant abdominal pain and jaundice. Gallstone complications, such as cholecystitis, cholecystitis, gallstone ileus, and pancreatitis, often presenting with right upper quadrant abdominal pain with or without jaundice in a patient predisposed to gallstones due to obesity, chronic total parenteral nutrition use, and medications. Autoimmune hepatitis presenting either as acute and severe disease, for example, acute liver failure, or insidious disease with fatigue, jaundice, abdominal pain, and arthralgias, Wilson's disease, with a presentation varying widely from asymptomatic to acute or chronic hepatitis to neurological abnormalities with or without hepatitis. These patients can present with changes in behavior, micrographia, tremors, or psychiatric abnormalities. Case point 34.1. She is otherwise healthy but admits to intentional weight loss of 15 pounds in the two months in preparation for an upcoming dance recital. Her previous body mass index was 30. She denies travel history, sexual activity, and the use of prescribed or illicit drugs. Her mother states her immunizations are up to date. Why is it important to know a patient's BMI and ask about weight loss or weight gain? An abnormally high BMI predisposes patients to a variety of gastrointestinal and hepatic medical problems, including cholelithiasis, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and pancreatitis. Time for a clinical pearl. Complications of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, often asymptomatic, can be seen in patients with obesity. These complications include type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. Weight loss or gain may be intentional or unintentional. Unintentional weight loss can be seen in various types of cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, and rheumatologic diseases. Time for a basic science clinical pearl. Rapid weight loss can cause loss of the fat pad underneath the superior mesenteric artery, leading to duodenal compression. This condition, known as superior mesenteric artery syndrome, presents with abdominal pain and bilious emesis. Case point 34.2. She's ill-appearing but afebrile. Her pulse rate is 95 beats per minute. Respiration rate is 13 per minute. Blood pressure is 137 over 85, and oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. On physical examination, she appears thin, with decreased subcutaneous fat stores. She has adequate muscle bulk. She appears well hydrated. 
Scleral icterus is prominent and her abdomen is tender in the epigastric region with guarding but without rebound. She does not have hepatosplenomegaly or ascites. Neurologically, she's alert and awake and oriented to person, place, and time. She has no skin rashes or abnormal bruising. Her physical examination is otherwise unremarkable. So what is the most likely diagnosis based on the findings thus far? Given her acute weight loss, emesis, and acute onset pain in the epigastrum, pancreatitis due to gallstones is high in the differential. She is also the right age and gender for the presentation of autoimmune hepatitis. She is also the prime age for hepatitis due to Epstein-Barr virus. Other causes of viral hepatitis seem less likely, given that she denies a travel history, which would be significant for hepatitis A. Her immunizations are up to date. She could have been vaccinated for hepatitis B. And she denies being sexually active or using intravenous drugs, which would be a concern for hepatitis C. What laboratory tests are indicated in this patient? Elevations in serum amylase and lipase levels may be diagnostic of acute pancreatitis. The diagnosis is supported by abdominal pain consistent with pancreatitis, high serum amylase and lipase, and features of acute pancreatitis on radiographic imaging. Obtaining a fractionated bilirubin, as well as a liver panel, including AST, ALT, prothrombin time, GGT, can help distinguish liver pathology and cholestasis from hemolysis. Hemolysis would result in elevations of unconjugated bilirubin, and AST would be higher than ALT. GGT, which is specific for the biliary system's cholangiocytes, would not be elevated with hemolysis. A prolonged PT may indicate liver failure in the absence of other causes. A complete blood cell count should be obtained to evaluate for pancytopenia, which can be associated with severe liver dysfunction or leukocytosis, which can be seen with pancreatitis. The hemoglobin and hematocrit would be low with hemolysis, and the peripheral smear may show schistocytes, or fragmented red blood cells. The serum lactate dehydrogenase, or LDH, level would be elevated, and the serum haptoglobin level would be decreased with hemolysis. A low platelet count may indicate chronic liver disease due to portal hypertension and splenic sequestration of platelets. In most hemolytic anemias, the platelet count is normal. A chemistry panel should be obtained to evaluate for the degree of dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities, which can predispose to abdominal pain and nausea, for example with hypokalemia. Case point 34.3. Laboratory tests are remarkable for an amylase level of 1,680, normal ranging between 23 to 85, a lipase level of 2,345, with normal ranges being 200 to 300, total bilirubin of 5.4, with normal ranging between 0.1 to 1.2, conjugated bilirubin of 2.4, with normal being less than 0.3, AST of 200, with normal being 8 to 48, and an ALT of 234, with normal being 7 to 55. Pancreatitis is diagnosed, and gallstone pancreatitis is suspected. What are the common symptoms of pancreatitis? 
The most common presentation of pancreatitis includes abdominal pain, which is seen in 80 to 95% of patients, nausea and emesis seen in 40 to 80% of patients, and abdominal distension seen in 21 to 46% of patients. Pancreatitis can be acute, chronic, lasting weeks to months, or recurrent, with patients having a clearance of the disease and then relapse. Can be hereditary, seen in cystic fibrosis and mutations in trypsin and trypsin inhibitors, hemorrhagic, when there's bleeding into the gland, and necrotic, with death of the gland and a high rate of mortality. Fortunately, most cases of young children with acute onset pancreatitis resolve quickly without sequelae. The other forms of pancreatitis listed here can result in severe complications, including shock, renal failure, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and chronic malnutrition. Time for a basic science clinical pearl. The incidence of pancreatitis in the pediatric population is increasing. This has correlated with the obesity epidemic and increased presentation of gallstones in pediatrics. So what are the most common causes of pancreatitis? Most common cause of pancreatitis in children is cholelithiasis or gallbladder sludge, which account for 10 to 30% of cases. Other causes, from most to least important in occurrence, include medications, idiopathic, systemic, trauma, identified viral infections, metabolic disease due to ERCP, cystic fibrosis, and alcohol. Time for a basic science clinical pearl. In adults, gallstones and alcoholism account for the majority of cases of acute pancreatitis. So what is the next step? In the setting of elevated serum lipase and conjugated bilirubin levels, the next step is to order an abdominal ultrasound. The abdominal ultrasound is not to evaluate the pancreas, but rather to evaluate for biliary causes of pancreatitis, such as cholelithiasis and cholelithiasis. An ultrasound can also be helpful to evaluate for underlying anatomic abnormalities such as cholidocal cysts, annular pancreas, and pancreatic divisa, which can also be associated with pancreatitis. The normal developmental embryology of the pancreas is seen in figure 34.1 for your review. Time for another basic science clinical pearl. Cholidocal cysts are congenital cystic dilations of the intrahepatic and or extrahepatic biliary tree. They require resection due to the increased risk of contributing to the development of biliary malignancy. Time for another basic science clinical pearl. Annular pancreas is a rare anomaly associated with abnormal embryologic development of the pancreas. This occurs when there is a ring of pancreatic tissue around the second portion of the duodenum. It is associated with low birth weight, feeding problems, and polyhydramnios. It is thought to occur in 1 in 12,000 to 15,000 live births and requires surgical correction if symptomatic. Time for another basic science clinical pearl. Pancreatic divism occurs when there is a failure of the ventral and dorsal pancreas to fuse. It is estimated that up to 10% of embryos have this abnormality. However, most individuals with this condition will remain asymptomatic, and it can be found incidentally on autopsy. If symptomatic, various surgeries can be attempted to stent, enlarge, or bypass the affected ducts to improve drainage. Although the likelihood of cholidocolithiasis 
is higher in patients with dilated bile ducts and elevated liver enzymes. An abdominal ultrasound can miss a significant portion of the patients with stones in the common bile duct. If bilirubin continues to remain elevated, despite the normal appearance of the bile ducts on ultrasound, the next best step is to obtain a magnetic resonance cholangiopancreatography, or MRCP, which has high sensitivity and specificity in identifying cholidocolithiasis as the cause of the pancreatitis. Case point 34.4. An abdominal ultrasound is obtained which demonstrates a normal liver size and echogenicity, and stones visualize in the gallbladder, cystic duct, and common bile duct. This can be seen in figure 34.2 and 34.3. The pancreas appears heterogeneous with edema and no peripancreatic fluid collections are visualized. The diagnosis is gallstone pancreatitis. So how do gallstones cause pancreatitis? When gallstones obstruct the bile ducts, the pancreatic enzymes cannot get released into the third portion of the duodenum through the ampulla evator. These digestive enzymes then go retrograde into the pancreatic tissue and cause inflammation and edema. How is pancreatitis treated acutely? The management of pancreatitis includes initial bowel rest, fluid resuscitation, and pain management. If emesis is persistent due to ileus, a nasogastric tube can be placed to low intermittent suction. Early initiation of feeds has been shown to decrease morbidity and mortality. Parenteral nutrition should be started via central line if the patient is expected to be unable to take enteral feeds for more than three days. Duodenal acidification can be reduced by giving oral or parenteral histamine 2 receptor antagonists. Complete pain relief may be difficult as many opiates have been implicated to worsen pancreatitis symptoms by causing spasm of the sphincter of odi. Meperididine has been reported to have the least effect on enterobiliary pressures. Hydromorphone can also be used for pain relief. If there are clinical signs of sepsis, multi-organ failure, or necrosis of the gland, antibiotics should be considered. Time for a clinical pearl. Patients may become extremely ill with unstable hemodynamics such as tachycardia and hypotension, indicative of systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRTS. These patients require aggressive fluid resuscitation and intensive care monitoring. Case point 34.5. The patient is admitted to the hospital and an order is placed to restrict her from all oral intake. She is started on a high-rate IV saline infusion. The following morning, her AST has decreased to 100, ALT to 120, and total bilirubin to 4. So what is the next best step? Patients with cholidocolithiasis found on imaging studies as well as any patient with clinical signs of cholangitis, such as fever, jaundice, right upper quadrant pain, plus or minus elevated white blood cell count, and or clinical signs of sepsis, require an endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, or ERCP, for duct decompression and stone retrieval. Time for a clinical pearl. ERCP is not only a diagnostic procedure for cholidocolithiasis, but it can also be therapeutic as well, as the operator can remove stones and place stents for drainage. Unfortunately, ERCP can inadvertently result in iatrogenic pancreatitis in about 20% of cases. Case point 
The patient undergoes ERCP and cholidocolithiasis is found during the procedure. Stones are retrieved from the common bile duct via a basket. A sphincterotomy is performed and a stent is placed to allow further drainage. Over the next three days, the patient's pancreatitis resolves and she's able to be weaned to exclusive oral nutrition. She and her family receive nutritional and weight management counseling from a registered dietitian. She's scheduled for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy prior to discharge. Time for our Beyond the Pearls. In adult studies, abdominal adiposity has been associated with an increased risk of pancreatitis. The cause has yet to be determined, but in animal models, it is thought to be due to increased cytokines associated with adipose tissue. Even if the cholidocolithiasis was not found at the time of the pancreatitis, it does not necessarily mean that gallstones were not the cause. A gallstone can still pass through the bile duct and lodge in the papilla, having caused temporary pancreatic duct obstruction leading to pancreatitis, prior to it passing through the papilla and into the intestinal tract. People with pancreatic divism are thought to be protected against gallstone pancreatitis as the pancreas would drain through the minor papilla via the duct of Santorini. Therefore, if a gallstone were to pass into the papilla, the pancreas would still drain through the minor papilla without obstruction. In cases of severe pain due to chronic pancreatitis, an ERCP with sphincterotomy with or without stent placement can be considered to reduce pressure in the gland even if the cholidocolithiasis is not present. The PUSTO procedure can also be considered for patients with chronic unremitting pain due to pancreatitis. Also called a longitudinal pancreaticojujunostomy, this surgery creates a permanent side-to-side anastomosis between the pancreatic duct and jejunum. So let's summarize the case. A 16-year-old female presents to the emergency room with acute onset of yellow eyes, epigastric pain, vomiting. Her history is significant for an intentional weight loss of 15 pounds in two months. Her findings? Physical exam reveals an ill-appearing thin teenage female in moderate pain. She has scleral icterus and moderate epigastric pain with guarding. Labs are significant for an elevated amylase lipase, total bilirubin, conjugated bilirubin, AST, and ALT level. An abdominal ultrasound demonstrates stones in the gallbladder, cystic duct, and common bile duct. The diagnosis? Gallstone pancreatitis. The treatment? She is treated with hydration, bowel rust, and intravenous acid blockage and pain medications. An endoscopic retrograde pancreatography reveals multiple stones in the common bile duct, which were retrieved with a basket. A sphincterotomy and a stent are performed endoscopically. Her diet is advanced, her pain medications are weaned, and she's scheduled for laparoscopic cholecystectomy prior to discharge. This concludes case 34. Again, this is Dr. Parastukhalasi Hosseini. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.